It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great pleasure to be with you today. Lots to talk about. Anybody see the um, TV series Ozark? I, I yeah, just, I saw it. Yeah, I didn't ask you. <laughs> Who told you to chime in? <laughs> anyway, if anybody saw the TV series Ozark, it's a great series. Uh, it's gone on for several seasons. I think um, they're reloading right now. Anyway, one of the neat parts of this, uh, the Ozarks is a tough place. It's a place of uh, self-reliance, personal responsibility. Anyhow, the reason I raise the Ozarks is uh, one of the things we're going to cover today with the great reporter John Solomon is the fact that Hunter Biden in a paternity suit, paternity lawsuit, uh, for a baby he doesn't claim, he finally got nailed because they did the DNA test. It's his kid from a pole dancer in, I guess, someplace in the Ozarks. I don't know where she's from. Four years old, this kid is. And uh, Hunter Biden is trying to welch on his uh, payments, right? He's trying to welch on it. So there's a big lawsuit, a very tough judge. It's Batesville, Arkansas. Batesville, Arkansas. You can look it up on the map, Google it, Google map, whatever. You'll see it right up there in the Ozarks. Not Little Rocks. A long ways from Bel Air or Los Angeles or Washington, D.C. or New York. And this judge could solve the whole Hunter Biden story with the laptop computer and all the financial transactions and all the pay-to-play bribery going on in the Biden crime family. And uh, by the way, a whistleblower... A whistleblower uh, came up. We haven't seen this person yet, but uh, Chuck Grassley, Senator Chuck Grassley, Senator uh, Ron Johnson, and uh, House Oversight Committee Chair James Comer. Anyway, they claim to have a, I think it's going to turn out to be an FBI whistleblower, but we don't know that yet. And there's uh, affidavit documents that haven't been opened yet. And he wants uh, immunity to testify. But anyway, he's saying there's a pay-to-play scheme involving President Biden while he was vice president. And it wasn't China. Apparently, it was Ukraine. Now, we don't know this. These are all allegations. I want to say that off the top. But, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. And that's particularly true with the Biden family. But back to the Ozarks. Uh, This judge is uh, demanding to see all of Hunter's financial records because he's trying to get out of paying uh, for this child he fathered, which I don't think he's actually admitted to, but he's in court. She forced him to come in the court, the judge. And, uh, of course, uh, Papa Joe, Grandpapa Joe, will not acknowledge that he has this grandkid. It's a typical Joe Biden. We'll probably start yelling MAGA, MAGA, MAGA. Anyway, we'll talk to we'll talk to John Solomon about all this later in the show. And I might add also something that needs to be covered is this Tony Blinken, Anthony Blinken, who was the Secretary of State. And it turns out the guy's just a dirty, a political dirty trickster. That's all he is. And this whole letter, remember 
when the New York Post first came up with the um, with the laptop computer, Hunter's laptop computer, you know, left in some store in Delaware. Anyway, uh, it was Blinken, who was a Biden campaign operative. That's all he was. Formerly a Hillary Clinton operative, but a Biden campaign operative. And he tells former deputy director of the CIA, Mike Morrell, uh, to get, put together 51, I call it the Gang of 51, former senior intelligence officers, CIA directors, NSA directors, DNI directors, incredible, all Democrats, to put a letter together calling it Russian disinformation which the FBI had for over a year. They knew darn well it wasn't Russian disinformation. But Blinken prompted this letter, which was written and put together by Morrell with these 51 uh, intel people. All lied. All, every one of them lied. And Blinken was rewarded. He was rewarded with the, the number one cabinet post in our government, Secretary of State. Don't you love this? A bunch of political dirty tricksters. I want to talk about that, too, because this stuff, you know, it just shows you this is a government. This is an administration that is full of corruption from top to bottom. I'm taking no prisoners here. If you disagree with me, I guess I respect your disagreement. But the evidence is mounting. More evidence is coming. It's not that Joe Biden's 80 years old. It's his socialist policies and the inherent corruption inside his White House and administration that gets my back up. And uh, we will talk to one of the best reporters about this later in the show. Anyway, I want to begin with some economics, okay? Can't help myself. We had a jobs number yesterday that on the surface looked like a pretty good number, 200-and-something, 50,000 uh, jobs, but as it turns out, yeah, 253,000 jobs, but it turns out it wasn't because the prior two months have been revised down in February and March, uh, about 150,000 jobs previously reported didn't exist. So they were taken out. They're downward revisions. Now this kind of thing happens all the time, but you know, you, you, you got to be able to interpret it as great meaning. So what looked like a big number for the month of April reported yesterday, Bureau of Labor Statistics, the 253,000 wasn't. It's actually 104,000 because you have to account for these revisions. And this is very poorly reported in the press. All right. Now, whether that's because they're biased or not, I don't know. But I've been in this game a long time. I mean, it's a relatively simple fact. Good economists have picked up on this. So we didn't get the 253. It's really 104,000. So that's a problem and does continue to show weakness in the economy. The first quarter was only 1.1%. Actually, the last five quarters, what I call the Biden economy, not, not 2021, that was the Trump economy and the COVID recovery economy. But the last five quarters for 2022 and the first quarter of 2023, that one is a function of Biden policies. Tax and spend and regulate and the war against fossil fuels and the war against business. 
Anyway, my point is less than 1% growth for the last five quarters, 0.9% growth. That's his track record. With an inflation rate of 6.5%. That's for the first five quarters under Joe Biden. Ain't much. He basically took a 6.5% Trump economy and ran it down to less than 1%. He basically took a 1.5% Trump inflation rate and ran it up as high as 9%. It's still hovering around 5%. And as I say, for the five quarters under Trump, under uh, Biden, rather, at 6.5%. Yesterday's uh, jobs number, which was reported strong, was not strong. I want to make another point, too. Joe Lavornia, who was the chief economist of the White House National Economic Council. Uh, Joe was my top economist when I ran that NEC during the Trump years. Uh, he just did a study. Joe will be on later in the show. He's a very smart guy. He calculates that under Joe Biden, blue-collar real wages, okay, middle-income blue-collar real wages, that is wages adjusted for inflation, have fallen 2.1% under Joe Biden for his entire term. And by contrast, under Donald Trump, blue-collar real wages exploded by 7.3%. That's the great middle class, working folks, typical families. Over 7% growth under Trump, negative 2% under Biden. That has always been the soft underbelly of the Biden economy. People are working, which is great. They are earning wages, which is great. But the inflation rate exceeds the wage rate. And that's why everybody's so pessimistic. And that's why Biden's so unpopular. His economic approvals, I don't know, whatever it is, 35%. It's this, real wages, what you take home after inflation. So take-home pay has fallen for two years plus under Joe Biden. It boomed under Donald Trump. Boomed. Even with the COVID uh, problems of 2020 when the economy crashed in the second quarter. Gives you something to think about. That's what lacks. That's why there was this interesting... Interesting column in the Wall Street Journal by uh, Jerry Baker, Gerard Baker, who's an old friend. And he's not a Trump guy. In fact, I think he's kind of a never-Trumper. But uh, Jerry Baker wrote a column in the op-ed pages of the Wall Street Journal this past week where he said, basically, if pocketbook issues are important in the next presidential race, Donald Trump could win. Again, because Trump is strong on the pocketbook issues. Trump had a very strong economy. Real wages went up. Trump's tax cuts and deregulation and fossil fuel, oil and gas expansion worked. Now, will pocketbook issues be important in the election? You bet they will. They always are. Pocketbook issues are always important. I mean, peace and prosperity, typical presidential themes. And uh, same time, a news uh, article 
Actually, no, it was an opinion piece. It was an opinion piece, uh, also in the journal, by Greg Ipp. It's kind of like a middle-of-the-road mainstream reporter, guy who used to work for the Washington Post, now he's with the Wall Street Journal. He's a friend of mine, straight shooter. You know, he makes the case that um, Joe Biden ought to make a deal with Kevin McCarthy, okay, because it would help enormously to solve the inflation and the interest rate problem. Greg Ipp writes in the Wall Street Journal this past week, a debt deal could help solve the country's inflation problem. Spending cuts could prompt the Fed to cut interest rates sooner, easing some of the pressure on banks. That's a very important point. Biden won't do it. You know, he keeps blathering on. He did it again yesterday. MAGA, MAGA, MAGA. He wants a clean debt bill. No way. There's going to be budget reform. There has been in the past, as Biden well knows. And there's going to be again, because Kevin McCarthy's plan, the Republican plan, we'll talk more about it, is a good plan. It's pro-growth. It would curb inflation. It would reduce spending. It would reduce debt. It would reduce inflation and help the Fed to get interest rates down sooner. And that would take the pressure off, you know, these regional banks and other banks who are in trouble because of skyrocketing interest rates. So this is all kind of out there, and we're going to talk about that over the course of the show. Hunter Biden's got problems. Tony Blinken's a political dirty trickster. The economy continues to sink. Real wages for ordinary, typical working-class blue-collar families continue to sink. Joe Biden doesn't want to make a budget deal. There's only one plan right now to raise the debt ceiling so we can protect the dollar and we can protect the financial integrity of the United States. There is only one plan out there, and that plan comes from the House Republicans, Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And it's a very good plan. And Joe Biden's going to have to negotiate. they got about three or four weeks to do it. So get going, folks. Get going. I'm going to take a quick break. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Be back in a sec. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYC. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Hey back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. By the way, well, first of all, by the way, this uh, chorus of talk coming from the producers and engineers, I, I think they're silent now. I've never heard such an outburst in all my years of radio. <laughs> I guess they like Ozark. I like Ozark. I like this Ozark judge. Because she's going to pin Hunter Biden's butt to the wall. I mean, she's going to succeed where everybody else has failed. We'll talk more about that later in the show. It's an amazing story. They don't mess down in the Ozarks. There's no Bel Air or Los Angeles 
or uh, Washington, D.C. in the Ozarks. So, by the way, join us during the week on TV, Fox Business Network TV, every day, Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. Name the show is Cudlow. 4 to 5 p.m. If you can't get there at 4 o'clock, text your favorite nine-year-old, and she'll show you how to DVR the show. And here... On the radio, you can uh, live stream us on the Internet, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. Plays all across the country, throughout the world, in this, completely throughout the solar system, and I think the Milky Way. I still haven't figured the Milky Way out yet. But as far as I'm concerned, the Ozarks are the Milky Way. This point I want to come back to uh Go back and look at yesterday's Wall Street Journal, John, uh, Greg Ipp. Greg Ipp, a straight shooter. I mean, kind of a Keynesian. There's no big, you know, there's no Cudlow, Laffer, Moore, supply side or anything like that. But he writes a good point. It's a good, good column. Um, a debt deal could help solve the country's inflation problem. Less spending, which Joe Biden hates. I mean, Joe Biden would not cut a nickel out of the budget. The guy has spent roughly $6 trillion as president with all these crazy bills starting in March of 2021 with the so-called whatever American relief plan, which we did not need because the economy was booming as COVID began to wane. And then you had infrastructure bills and chip bills and the misnamed Inflation Reduction Act and, you know, massive climate uh, spending. All of his spending is what helped trigger inflation. And, of course, the Federal Reserve printed money to finance it. And, of course, the debt is run up. And that's one reason why we're hitting the debt ceiling so soon. The debt ceiling may be, we may run out of cash June 1, Maybe sometime next month, I think we're going to run out of cash, so they better make a deal. But the point is, lower spending would help curb inflation. And that, in turn, would uh, prompt the Fed to cut interest rates. Instead of raising them, the Fed could cut them if they got some help from fiscal budget policy. And Biden won't do it. Because he doesn't want, you know, you've got all this left-wing socialist Democratic Party. And they want to scratch every left-wing socialist spending itch they have. And they don't want to cut a nickel, not a nickel, out of the budget. And that is the problem. And who, why would we give them a bigger credit card, a bigger license to steal There have to be budget reforms. Even Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, who unfortunately signed on to the omnibus spending bill late last year, which was a terrible bill. But nonetheless, Senator McConnell, the Republican Senate leader, he's saying there's got to be a deal and it's got to have budget reform just like we've had many times in recent decades, including when Joe Biden negotiated with John Boehner when Biden was uh, Obama's vice president. Biden knows this. He knows all about this. He's just playing politics here. 
So we'll come back with all that. We have, uh, who do we have? We have, oh, Kevin Hassett, my pal, former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. I'm looking at the chorus here. This, if I say, if I say Ozarks, there's no telling what they're likely to do. They all sing together. Ozarks. Who asked them? Anyway, they're good guys. They help produce this show. I'm Cudlow. We're going to take a break. Kevin Hassett, former CEA chair on the other side of the break. Stay with us, folks. Lots more to do. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're trying to track down my pal, Kevin Hassett. Uh, we'll get to him. But I want to continue this uh, this conversation uh, about the budget negotiations. It's a little bit boring. I understand that. It's a, it's a little bit boring. But, you know, we don't want to default on the debt. And... Janet Yellen, uh, the Treasury Secretary, who was completely unreliable, completely unreliable. She's done a terrible job. I mean, she's become this climate fanatic. She used to be pretty good Fed chair. <clears throat> I don't know. Maybe she was a big lefty all the time and hit it when she was running the Fed. But she said June 1st is uh, going to be the day the government runs out of money. Now, it's interesting, this business of government running out of money. First of all, we are, uh, you know, Joe Biden keeps telling everybody, Joe Biden keeps telling everybody how he's cutting the budget deficit, which is just a complete, uh, it's a complete lie. It's a complete fabrication. It's a complete untruth. The budget deficit continues to grow. Now, look at, we have for fiscal year, hang, 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 hang with me on this. I know this is somewhat boring, and I'm going to throw a lot of numbers at you. But you're talking about the U.S. government running out of money, all right? Bankruptcy. Fam- family runs out of money. What do they do? They have to cut back on their spending. Joe Biden doesn't want to do that, doesn't want to cut a nickel out of the budget. He spent close to $6 trillion dollars. In two years, six trillion dollars in two years. And even this fiscal year, FY23, we have six months in the books. Okay. It started last October 1st. So through March 30th, right? 30 days have September, April, June. I think so. March 30th. Um, we are running, uh, about $90 billion lower in revenues, tax revenues. Why? Because the economy is soft. That's why. And because the stock market last year, the stock market last year was down close to 20%. So capital gains, realizations, right, tax rate on capital gains, well, they all plunged. There weren't any capital gains. There were big capital losses. That's one part. Corporate profits down also. Anyway, we're running about $90 billion lower in revenues against a year ago. And here's the killer. Here's the killer. We are running now about $350 billion ahead of last year's spending. So the budget deficit already is $450 billion ahead of last year. And this only through half the year. 
All right. So we got uh, we got John Solomon on the line because we couldn't find Kevin Hassett. I'll hold my debt deficit thing uh, until we find Kevin, or I'll just come back later in the show. Anyway, uh, John Solomon, award-winning investigative journalist. He's the CEO and editor-in-chief of Just the News, fabulous uh, website, by the way. He has a new children's book out, which is very interesting, Hidden Headlines, a Seymour Clues mystery. John Solomon is also, as I said, investigative journalist. Nobody knows this Hunter Biden, Joe Biden shenanigans uh, better than John Solomon. John Solomon, first of all, welcome to the radio show. Great to be with you. You've, I know yeah. you've been on the TV, and I know you're a favorite of my pal Sean Hannity, but you do a fabulous <laughs> job. I, look, I, I hit Justin News every day. I look at it every oh, day, see what you're, you're cooking up. Give me a line or two on this. Uh, I, I happen to love uh, detective novels. So this is a a kid's <laughs> book, right? Hidden Headlines, Seymour Clues. Just give us a line or two on that one. Yeah, listen, I, I wanted to uh, give parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles a chance to teach your children something that teach educators aren't anymore. The Bill of Rights, why the First Amendment was first, why free speech is good, and why censorship is dangerous to America. This all born out of my experience of seeing the Hunter Biden stories that I wrote starting in 2019 be canceled and censored for a long time. And I, I realize there's a whole two generations of young adults have gone through school that weren't taught, taught the Bill of Rights. They weren't taught free speech is uh, mm. essential to America. And they actually were being taught that in some circumstances, censorship could be good for a larger collective. I don't know what that means, but it's scary. So I wrote a book. Uh, there's a uh, uh, my son's hamster chunk is a newspaper publisher. He can't get his newspaper through the tubes of the hamster village because someone clogged them. And a uh, courageous dog comes along, solves the case, and they get the newspaper out. <laughs> and the community saved from a flood. But the it's a fun story, great little images and great characters for children, but a much larger lesson that we hope parents can pass on to their children. And as I said, you you in in the course of this book, you put in the Bill of Rights and and free speech and so forth. Yes, that's the whole idea here is to remind people that if you don't have free speech, if you censor or you clog the tubes, as the allegory is here, uh, a danger communities become in danger. And that's the whole moral message here. There's even a, a lesson at the end of the book. Brave books is great. They create lessons for parents to, to continue the learning experience even after the book. I went to Philadelphia last week and read, uh, read the book to hundreds of children and parents. It was such a great experience. And you could see the children very quickly as we get walked through the story, understand what was going on. They were yelling out the bad guy, uh, cheering for the tubes <laughs> to get unclogged. It was really fun to see. Wow, that's great. And so the book is out. It is. It came out this Monday. Uh, oh. Books.us. That's where you can get it. All right. Terrific stuff. So, John Solomon, I want to turn to some of the uh, highlights or lowlights of the Biden crime family that came out this week. <laughs> and. Yeah. Um, I, I was especially interested, and in, we covered this on the TV show. You came on the show. Um, this judge in the Ozarks, ba- uh, Bateville, I believe it's called Bateville, Arkansas, or Batesville, right. Arkansas. This is a long stone's throw from uh, from Los Angeles and uh, Bel Air, California, where <laughs> Hunter Biden usually hangs out. But he's involved in a kind of deadbeat lawsuit. Uh, he has this illegitimate child, uh, which he didn't fess up to, but they had a DNA test, so it is his kid. His, his father will not acknowledge that he's got another grandchild. Yes. But the, the judge um, is a very tough judge, 
in the Ozarks, and she's had federal experience. I had um, uh, Governor Mike Huckabee on, who know obviously from Arkansas. He knows all about her. But the point is now, this judge not only is forcing Hunter Biden to be in court as they discuss uh, his deadbeat dadness, but she is demanding to see all of his financial statements, open the books on everything, all the deals, everything on the laptop computer, deals with China, deals with Ukraine. Tell us about this, because she may succeed in um, in uh, giving the light of day to the Hunter Biden story where others have failed so far. Yeah, I think you put that just perfectly. This judge may open up uh, all the places where Hunter Biden has gotten gifts, all the places where people may have paid his bills, all the places where foreign countries gave money into an LLC, then it got it routed through three or four different things and then comes to him or other family members. Um, There's nothing like a court order to get a a level of transparency that we've been denied here, uh, certainly in Washington, from Congress and, and other places. So in order to determine whether he's paying the proper amount of paternity, his lawyer says he pays $20,000 a month to this young child in Arkansas for their, for, for her care. But the, uh, until we, uh, until we know the judge doesn't want to say, Hey, that's the limit because maybe he's hiding income. And that's what the mother of this child believes that Hunter Biden has been getting a lot more money. Maybe some of it free as gifts, maybe some of it from foreign sources that weren't previously declared to the court. And so we're going to get a window into this. But the most interesting party may not even be Hunter Biden. It's James Comer here in Washington, the chairman of the Hobart House Oversight Committee. He very well may subpoena all the records that go to the court mm. so that we they can learn more about the cash flow that uh, Hunter Biden has as he, as he was running some of those foreign, um, foreign business deals. Uh, so, John Solomon, let me get this right. You're saying that uh, Jim Comer, who, who runs the Oversight Committee, he's another smart guy, uh, Will subpoena the records that come from the Batesville paternity's uh, case? He he can. Yes. Yes, he can. I don't think I knew that. I don't think I knew that. That's very interesting. Powers is a wonderful thing. Wow. Wow. So anything that surfaces in that courtroom, he can bring into his committee. That's a, that is a strong possibility. Of course, at the end of the day, judge will decide what to make public or not make public, but. Uh, the Washington uh, investigative committees have been looking at Hunter Biden often stunted in their ability to get records and information right now. Some witnesses are cooperating. Uh, James Comer on my show this week said, hey, I'm worried about witness tampering. I'm seeing threats to some of my witnesses. Well, this may be an end round around some of the blockades that have been erected in Washington. This judge may give a level of visibility into Biden Inc. Mm. that we have yet to have. Right, right. Well, when I saw that stuff, I jumped all over it. Um because that you're that's but I didn't know that Comer could pull that in. Boy, that's that would change a lot, right yeah, there. That would. would change a lot. And she's a pretty um, smart and tough judge. That's why the Ozark influence is so interesting to me. Yes, listen, down in Arkansas. What's her name? Holly. Holly. Some or other. Yes, I said a tip of my tongue too. Now I just was reading it just uh, some of the rulings a little bit ago, but. A, a, a judge with a good record yep. and believes in transparency. Listen, the best way for these uh, paternity cases is for parents to be open. And I think there's a feeling that Hunter Biden hasn't been as transparent as the judge wanted or as the mom deserves. And I think at this moment, um, it's going. there's going to be a, some revelations we haven't seen before. The most interesting thing is that Hunter Biden's high-powered attorney here in Washington, one of the best attorneys in Washington, Abby Lowell, mm-hmm. former criminal division chief, 
He went to this last hearing. That tells you that the Hunter Biden team sees this as more than a paternity case, that this can open up new windows into uh, his income and his revenue and his business schemes that Congress could look at. I'm pretty sure that's why Abby Lowell went down to Arkansas with Hunter Biden. Yeah, you bet. Very. I mean, it, it's a great story in a way, not only because and, and Abby Lowell, as you say, a well-known criminal lawyer, but um, yeah. uh, Hunter says he doesn't have any money, but he's living in a mansion in Bel Air. He's got <laughs> some of the highest price lawyers in the country. Uh, yes. And he's got a whole record or, or a hidden record of, of financing. So, all right, that's going to be very interesting. Um, the other thing, John Solomon, that may or may not be related to this, there was a story, I, I think it was the Washington Post, that uh, the U.S. attorney in Delaware and the grand jury that's been meeting for five years may arraign Hunter Biden. They may charge Hunter Biden. Uh, soon, this week, next week, I don't know. What What do you know about that story? Yeah, so uh, my sources close to the Hunter Biden camp say that they expect the resign to the fact that he's about to be indicted by federal prosecutors by U.S. Attorney Weiss in Delaware, the man who was appointed in 2019 to investigate all things Hunter Biden. Uh, they expect it to be predominantly tax charges, uh, but there may also be a charge related to uh, false statements on the gun application, federal gun application. And uh, the sign that this was coming is that uh, a week ago Wednesday, Hunter Biden's lawyers met at the Justice Department. This is usually called the Hail Mary meeting, where mm. just before prosecutors make a decision to uh, seek an indictment, the defense team comes in, especially when you have a high-powered lawyer like Abby Lowe, and they try to make a case. Don't indict us. Here's what we would say. Here's how we do it. Let's make a deal. Uh, that meeting didn't apparently go very well. And as a result, I think the uh, Hunter Biden team is resigned to being uh, indicted in the next in the next few weeks. I think they, they think it will be before the end of the month. Of course, no one knows what a grand jury will do until it does it. Uh, but I think uh, the, the defense team definitely has uh, an ominous feeling that something is going to happen very soon. What, uh, John Solomon, what might the charges be? Well, if you believe the newspapers, the Washington Post described uh, a tax of uh, one tax evasion charge, two misdemeanor charges uh, related to late filing of taxes, and then one false statement on a government document. I'm hearing from other people there could be some more tax charges. It may not just be that. Uh, the Hunter Biden defense team is worried that there could be a few more. Let's keep in mind, when we got the laptop and we authenticated something I did in, in late 2020, the uh, you see these emails where Hunter Biden's being told in 2017, right as Donald Trump's about to become president, uh, from one of his business partners who handled his tax affairs. Hunter, you never declared four hundred thousand dollars of income from Ukraine, that mm. famous natural gas company, Burisma. It's mm. now three years later. We got to get right on that. We here and the, and the uh, Biden team said so they really didn't resolve those tax matters until 2022 when you paid more than $2 million in back taxes and fines and penalties. So those are the sort of things that, that could lead to a tax evasion charge or some other tax offense. And I think that's uh, what the uh, Hunter Biden team currently fears is about to happen. Well, one of his fancy lawyers, this Hollywood lawyer, Ma Morris, I think his name is. Yeah, yeah right. Kevin he, Morris, yes. He, so Kevin Morris paid two million dollars worth of back taxes that's what the hunter biden legal team has yeah that's what they have announced they announced that last year so john my thought though by the way um that is a gift and that is a taxable transaction so sure. hunter's got to pay that tax 
I mean, that's going to yeah, be that, in the mix. Right, unless it was a loan, which we don't know the terms. They've been very hush-hush about exactly how that deal went down. That's exactly why you see the mother of his child in Arkansas inquiring, which is, hey, $2.9 million, that, that that adds to a picture I don't have, and I want to know about that. And so mm-hmm. that's why these cases are also very much intertwined. And while this is going on, a more dramatic behind-the-scenes effort is going on. An IRS criminal investigator who supervised the team that conducted the Hunter Biden investigation, He's, he has been granted whistleblower status both by the Justice Department Inspector General, the chief watchdog of the Justice Department, and the House Ways and Means Committee. That's very significant. Normally, IRS agents can't talk about any tax matters. They're sealed by law. This tax uh, uh, well-respected criminal investigator has gotten whistleblower status, and he's now going to be able to tell Congress what he alleges was a political interference operation that kept him and the FBI from bringing uh, tax charges earlier. Mm. That testimony could come as early as this week. It'll be behind closed doors originally. Mm. Then the Ways and Means Committee could vote that out. But you may not just have a indictment, which would be historic for a presidential son. You may also have the beginning allegations of a cover-up under the Biden Justice Department. All right, John, I got to take a commercial break, but I hope you can stick around. We've got a lot more to cover. I just want to say John Solomon, award-winning investigative journalist, and uh, his newest book, uh, children's book called Hidden Headlines, A Seymour Clues Mystery, just out hot off the presses. And, of course, his fabulous website called Just the News. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking to John Solomon, award-winning investigative journalist and um, purveyor of the terrific website Just the News. He has a new book just out. It's a children's book called Hidden Headlines, A Seymour Clues Mystery. But nobody has covered the... um, the various Hunter Biden scandals, uh, as well as John Solomon. John, one other thing that popped up this week, this um, potential, I know it's all allegations. Right. But Chuck Grassley, Senator Grassley, who's a very crusty guy, and I don't think if there was no there there, I don't think he would be involved with this. But anyway, this is a potential pay-for-play bribery scandal, uh, with respect to vice then Vice President Joe Biden. What can you tell us about that? Yep. So uh, Senator Grassley has been in the Senate for more than four decades. He has been a champion of uh, whistleblowers. And he says that one or more whistleblowers from the FBI came forward recently and divulged to the Senate that back in the summer of 2020, six months before the presidential election, in June 2020, the FBI and FBI agents, while interviewing one of their confidential human sources, an informant, learned of a pay-to-play scheme. This informant made an allegation that Joe Biden was involved in trading policy for money to him or his family. Uh, it came in, and there was grave concerns that it wasn't seriously investigated. It wasn't looked at, and it got put in an icebox and, and went away. And so he has now, uh, because he's in the minority in the Senate, joined forces with the aforementioned James Comer, the House uh, Committee Chairman, who has subpoena authority. And on Thursday, working together, the Senate Republican and the House Republican, they issued a subpoena compelling uh, FBI Director Chris Ray to produce all records of this contact, this confidential human source contact, making an allegation that Joe Biden, not Hunter Biden, but Joe Biden, 
was involved in the pay-to-play scheme. Now, confidential informants come in all the time with information. Not all of their information turns out to be true. Christopher Steele, former MI6 agent, mm. at sometimes gave very good information to the FBI that resulted in some arrests and some corruption cases. But he also gave us a Steele dossier, which turned out to be mostly uncorroborated or actually debunked information of Russia collusions. Evaluated, investigated, and then they make a decision whether to proceed. Grassi's concern isn't whether or not the information is true. We'll find that out as well. That the FBI may never have taken the time to even look at the information and evaluate hmm. whether the man running for president had a criminal problem. And this, um, I don't know, I read someplace, it's not China. It's another country. It's Ukraine. Yes, Ukraine. I'm sorry. I should have mentioned that. Yes, it's Ukraine. Right. Everything keeps coming back to Ukraine. That's where the Hunter Biden and Joe Biden scandal began. Of course, it took us to China, Russia, and other places. But at this moment, it seems to be coming backwards to the, its origins point, which was the 2014 time frame when Hunter Biden got hired by a Ukrainian gas company that our own State Department considered crooked. Mm. And uh, Joe Biden goes and gives a speech in, in Ukraine. And uh, natural gas, a lot of people think those two things are connected. All right, John Solomon, great rundown. We appreciate it very much. And, folks, don't forget the book, A Seymour Clues Mystery, called Hidden Headlines. I'm Cudlow. We're going to take a break. And we have found Kevin Hassett, and he'll show up on the other side of the break. Please stick around. Much more to do today. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Cudlow Show. Former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors during the Trump administration, He's a distinguished visiting fellow at Hoover Institution, and he has a great book out. It's called The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. I call it the most important book of the 21st century, and I'm not kidding, Stopping the Slide to America's Socialism. Holy cow. Anyway, Kevin, uh, let's talk about the debt business for a second. Um mm-hmm. So Johnny Allen says we're going to run out of money uh June 1st, whether it's June 1st or June 7th, it does look like we're coming to the end game and they've got to do something about it. Uh, we'll talk about Kevin McCarthy's plan, but I've been quoting, I want to see what you think. I've been quoting the Wall Street Journal, uh, Greg Ip. You know Greg. He's, kind of, he's, he's a good guy. He's a straight shooter. Um, he wrote a piece saying a debt deal could help solve the country's inflation problem. Spending cuts could prompt the Fed to cut interest rates sooner, easing some of the pressure on banks. So without being precise, but the point is uh, less spending does lead to lower inflation. At some point, it could mean either the Fed, you know, can stop raising rates or maybe bring them down. That would take some of the pressure off banks. In other words, it's eminently reasonable that we should solve this debt. And I want to add to that, Kevin, maybe a surprise, but Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader of the Senate, who unfortunately voted for the omnibus spending bill last year, he's saying there isn't going to be a debt solution without budget reforms, referring to Kevin McCarthy. So what do you make of this story? Right. Well, you know, it. it it's also like the thing to add to it is that, you know, Biden probably wants to be reelected. We know he's running. 
And so, you know, an economy that's, you know, at least just struggling with high inflation is not a good thing for him. And so he, he should want to, hmm. you know, reduce aggregate demand uh, and, you know, take the pressure off inflation. You know, the, the, the way to think about it, too, is just like if the government says we're going to spend a lot more money, then prices go up because there's all that spending unless supply goes up a lot. Mm -hmm. And so since Biden has been attacking supply and feeding demand, he's been feeding inflation. And and so, you know, I'm I'm have no confidence that he's going to do any supply side things. Right. But he can he can reduce demand by cutting government spending. And and government spending basically is just about at the peak level from COVID. So it hasn't gone back to normal. There's lots of room to cut to go back to normal. And if he does, then he's actually going to help the economy that he wants to be strong when he runs for president. So why doesn't he do it, Kevin? Yeah, I think he, I, I, I know he, he checks in with you constantly. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> why, why doesn't he do it? I think he will cave in the end a little bit. Yeah, oh. I, 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 yeah that's what I think. You think it, that? It, it, yeah, but, so, so he'll cave because it's actually the right thing to do. Uh, but the other reason that he'll cave is actually a, a sort of more interesting thing to me, just like as a political matter, which is the, the something that the Republicans could do that Mitch McConnell's a genius at is, you know, and, and you and I disagreed about this on TV a little bit when we talked about it. But, you know, they could just lift the debt limit a month at a time for the rest of the year. And if they do, then they're going to eat up all the Senate floor time for the rest of the year on the mm. debt limit. And so they're not going to get any judges confirmed or anything else. And so so. You know, as far as Republicans are concerned, um, they want to slow down like the Democrats and their attempts to stack the you know appointees with people that we don't like. And and, and, and so if they drag the debt limit fight out um, by extending it a little bit at a time, then they can basically gridlock the Senate for the rest of the year almost. And it, 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 so I think that in the end, this is a problem that the Democrats want to go away more well, than the Republicans do. Well, you need 10 votes. To get it through the Senate, you need ten Democrats. I mean, sixty votes is necessary. But um, Biden's out there now, and, and this is predictable. Saying uh, how the McCarthy plan is going to destroy this program and that program, and veterans and this. By the way, Kevin, as you know, what Biden is doing is putting a one percent growth cap. These budgets are still going to go up. They're just going to there's just a speed limit. And Joe Biden doesn't want to he doesn't want to abide. He's got a heavy foot. He doesn't want to abide by the speed limit. I mean, I think that, you know, to clarify that the the budget will still rise. These programs, which have gone up astronomically, are still going to go up just at a a slower speed. Right. Right. Now, now, the one thing like to, to that Biden might respond to that is that there's a since inflation is high and of course it's their fault that inflation is high but since inflation is high then you know you've got to increase you know social security benefits by inflation and that's mm-hmm. a big number and so that if you constrain the overall growth there's some things that are automatically adjusted for inflation that are pretty big like social security and of course medicare is going to go up with inflation too and so if everything else is going to average out to going up 1% a year then there's going to be there's going to have to be some cuts well, it seems to me. I would so that would be their argument. There. I would say, titch, titch, what a pity. I mean, discretionary after what we've done in the last couple of years, it's, it's okay by me. It's okay by no, you. Of course, yeah. So, what about uh, they're going to oppose work requirements? And I don't think you know that's another one. That eighty percent of the public, the polling is so clear on this, Kevin. People love work requirements. 
Mm-hmm. Biden hates them. Yeah, I really just don't understand sometimes where they're coming from. But, but you know, again, if you put in a work requirement, then there'll be more people, like, leaving their basements, especially, like, it, it's something that it's in the literature, right? They're sort of recent college grads are hanging out in the basement playing video games and yeah. getting a job, yeah. right? And, and, and so if you send those kids out into the labor force, then they're going to uh, put downward pressure on wages. Uh, they'll put down upward pressure on supply because you got more workers. Uh, it would help the Fed fight inflation. Uh, and, and so <laughs> they could oppose it, I suppose, for, but I'm not really sure for what reason. I mean, I, I, other, than, uh, other than you think that if they just have like all these people dependent on government, then they're always going to vote Democrat. Um, maybe that's the reason. But well, it, it's, it's a foolish of them. I mean, I think people are pretty fed up with inflation and, you know, overspending and overborrowing. I think, I mean, again, that's what polls show. Uh, what does it mean that the government's going to run out of money? Let, let's assume J- June 1st, whether that's true or not. You know, as you said on the show, it could be June 7th, whatever. Uh, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? Nobody, yeah. <laughs> tell us. Well, well what, yeah, what, so what's going to happen if they actually did run out of money, which I think is almost the zero probability, but, but if they did, then what would happen would be that all of a sudden they don't have the money to pay government workers. Mm. They don't have the money to pay interest on the debt. Um, they, you know, so they'll just stop cutting checks, but the checks don't go to zero. It's just that they can't they can't um, borrow. Mm-hmm. And so if it turns out that there's a lot of tax revenue comes in that week, then they might be able to, like, write all the checks that week because you basically have to have a balanced budget. Right. Because but, but you have to have a balanced budget in continuous time, because, you know, if if you have a lot of spending on Tuesday, but no revenue came in on Tuesday, then you would have to borrow to make the, the payments. And so so what's going to happen is that the, the government would would pay some stuff, not pay other stuff. And they would, there'd be some days where they pay everything and some days where they don't. And the place where it would have the biggest effect, of course, is in financial markets, where if they're not making interest payments on the debt, then that's technically what default is. But, they, I mean, there's always revenues to pay the interest. Yeah, but they're not allowed to prioritize interest over other type. No, that was something. Oh, that's right. Had. You talked about that. You said there's yeah. a law against that. I yeah, that's right. We, I didn't know that. When we were in, when we were in the middle, this was before you got to the White House, but when we were and, – and I checked with your good friend who's younger than both of us, and so his memory is precise, Tyler Goodspeed. He remembers, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> he remembers it the way yes. I, I remember it, yes. which is that we asked the, uh, the maybe Office of Legal Counsel. It was one of the you know, places where we get legal advice in the White House. Uh, you know, are you allowed to prioritize? And they came back and sent us a memo that said no, that you have to mm. that you have to pay things, and it's a, like a separation of powers thing. Like Congress tells us how to spend the money, and we have to spend the money the way Congress tells us to. And, and, and so what that means is that all the bills that come on Tuesday, you pay them, and, and if there's some you don't pay on Tuesday, then those are the first in line on Wednesday. And, and, and so it is pretty hard to focus just on interest payments. Now, you could sort of maybe say, okay, all the interest payments on Tuesday are the first thing I pay, but I, I still think that you run the risk of, of missing a payment that, that really does set off a kind of financial panic. Well, one thing, though, uh, I was thinking Yellen maybe had done us a favor inadvertently because uh, if she says we're going to run out of money June 1, whether that's exactly true or not, it will force action. I mean, it could induce some panic in Washington that they're going to have to start their so-called last-minute 
negotiations. So that would be a good thing. Right. You know, I, and, and I, I'm sure that they're going to play chicken right up to the very yeah. end. Um, but yeah. it's very irresponsible. You know, Biden has uh, when he was in Obama's White House, he worked out a pretty reasonable deal mm-hmm. of a dollar increase in the debt limit for a dollar cut in spending. Mm-hmm. And there were real cuts. <laughs> Even, yeah. you know, in some sense, more aggressive than what McCarthy's talking about it. And so for him to just, you know, avoid negotiation and take a position that McCarthy's got like some kind of unprecedented irresponsibility, which is what they keep saying. It's just a lie. It's just not true. Uh, this is what always happens with the debt limit. And, and uh, you know, I, I really, you know, our friend uh, Stan Druckenmiller mm-hmm. uh, came out and I, I don't know if you saw, yeah. saw his interview, but. Yeah. But he he said basically what you and I have been saying all along, which is, you know, it seems like because we're talking so much about the debt limit, we're not talking about the fact that the U.S. is, you know, spent has spent so much money that we're on a path to to default. Mm. And we've got really big long run problems that we need to address them. And and the debt limit is a distraction. And it's not a distraction if you do what McCarthy says in the sense that it helps you make progress. Well, Stanley said, you know, years ago, Stanley said, if 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 you if if you paid the bond interest 10 days later, but you got for that some serious spending cuts, he'd be for it. Not that he's for that, but if it came to it, and I, you know, I understand what he's saying. The spending problem is more important than this immediate debt ceiling business and anything you can do to deal with the spending problem. I mean, McCarthy's got a 1% limit on spending for 10 years, discretionary spending for 10 years, I mean, that's a start, Kevin, right? I mean, that's what uh, Greg Ipp is referring to. It's a good start. It ain't perfect, but they got to do something. They can't do it. I mean, both parties have to look at this. It's a wake-up call, it seems to me. Right, and, and, and the thing is, and this is something, there There was a uh, Washington Post article. It, it made me think of old times. It was sort of attacking me uh, that came out this week because I've been <laughs> sort of advocating McCarthy's point of view. But, you know, I mean, I mean the fact is that, that when you and I were in the White House and we were like engaging in like the design of COVID relief packages, for sure, there was deficit spending. Um, but you know, I think that we always expected that well, the, the economy would get back to normal, and then you know the spending would go back to normal. Uh, and and then uh, like the Post said, well, you know, the Trump administration added all this debt, so they clearly don't care about debt. Uh, and so now that they do, they're, they're just, you know, being political, and not, you know, truthful or something is basically about what the mm-hmm. post said, said about me. But the fact is that the, that debt that we added during COVID, the interest rate was like zero. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that the carrying cost for it was not a serious threat to the economy. But but this year, interest payments on the debt are going to be bigger than defense spending mm-hmm. this year. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and this mm-hmm. year, interest payments on the debt likely are going to be bigger than Medicare spending. Mm. And they're and and you know in two years they're going to be bigger than Social Security spending, and so the problem is just not only that we have 32 trillion in debt, but also that that the interest rate is you know really five percent, and and it's going to stay there. You you saw the uh, average hourly earnings in the in the employment report this week, right? It said, said that wage inflation right now is running at about six percent annual rate, um, and and so the Fed's going to have to keep lifting rates, and 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 so you know five. Five percent of of thirty two trillion is one point six trillion a year mm. in interest payments, mm. right? So if interest, so if the yield curve were flat at five percent, then you're you're looking at one point six trillion a year in interest payments. Uh, 
You know, yeah. and, and so you got to do something about that. It, it's just it, you know, the, the government will have to stop providing all services except for, you know, mailing checks to the Chinese if yeah. they don't get that under control. <laughs> uh, was it you that sent me the Peterson? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, that was a scary piece, the Peterson yeah. Institute. That go, I mean, this the interest expense problem is is going to go on. I mean, it's going to keep getting worse. And there's also our, our other close friend, John Cochran, right. who, like, he has this, this whole book about, like, where inflation comes from that's, that's really become quite a sensation. And, but, but his point is that there's two things you could do when you have a massive amount of debt. And, you know, one thing is that you can, you know, reduce spending, cut deficits, maybe even run surpluses, because that's what you have to do to run the debt down, right? Mm. Um, and if people believe that you're going to do that, then there's like some hope that there'll be a market for your debt. Mm. Uh, but if people are confident that you're not going to do that, then they're just going to want to stop. They're going to stop wanting to hold your debt. And the, you know, basically because the belief will be that you're going to inflate it away at some point because you're not responsible. Hang on, and, Kevin Love. Uh-huh. Let me just take a quick break. And then I'm going to come back. We'll continue this. Yep. I want to ask we'll you a little do, bit. Yep. Just uh, hang on quick break. Folks, we're talking to the great Kevin Hassett, former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. He's out at Hoover Institute. He's got a great book out called The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. I call it the most important book of the 21st century. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. I mean, um, just for a minute or two, the jobs report is being reported as this big 253,000 but the prior two months were revised lower by a combined 150,000. So actually, the April number was really only just over 100,000. And right. I'm wondering whether this doesn't show weakness rather than strength. Yeah, I mean, you, you taught me this. Uh, the, the, when we're looking at the jobs report, if you want to, like, estimate the recent trend, what you do is you take the three-month moving average mm-hmm. about, you know, it's just sort of smooths through the – blips up and the blips down. And that tells you what the recent trend is. And it's another example of like the economic fact checker checkers failing at the White House because Biden came out, you know, bragging about this like terrific jobs report. But the downward revisions stretched all the way back to September. Mm. And, and 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 they were massive. And, and so if you look if you estimate like the recent trend, uh, then the three month moving average has gone from like around two hundred and eighty thousand job creation to about 210 and and so therefore there's like a downtrend in in what's going on in the in the job market and and and, and biden came out and said the opposite he, yeah. he said he said that things are trending up uh and and that's just like another example of them being shall we say factually challenged <laughs> and, and, and and so so i you know i i but but for me the big the big news is that that uh the, the average hourly earnings were were so high, which is it's good news when wages are high, but it also means inflation stays high. And so the Fed it looked at that job report and they said we got more work to do. Yeah. And and so they're going to raise at the next meeting too, you know. And that's something the market's a little unsure about right now. But they're going to have to because inflation is is out of control and it's going to stay out of control unless we get ahead of the curve on spending. Well, that's right? it. I mean, the Fed can't do it itself. Right. If the, the two should work together, but they're not. And I don't know why Jay Powell – I mean, I don't want Jay Powell to be – to get all political and stuff. 
But Jay Powell could, like Jay Powell could have said what Greg Ipp wrote without mentioning Kevin McCarthy or Republicans or Democrats. Jay Powell could have said what what Jay, what Greg Ipp wrote, and that spending cuts would take the pressure off the Fed's interest rate hikes. And, inflation. Right. and and you got to remember that Alan Greenspan did that over yes. and over. Ben Bernanke did that over and over. Volker right did. Now. I mean, so, Volker did it. Yes. And so it's a, it's a very common thing out of the playbook. Janet Yellen didn't do it because she was in a time where maybe it didn't look so bad with the interest rates being zero. And also because she is a real Keynesian. Mm. Um, and so she wants the government to spend lots of money. Yes. But, but you know, I mean, the fact is that Jay uh, wants to lick inflation. I think he's shown that he's serious about it. Uh, you know, he started late, but he's serious about it now. And, and so, therefore, he needs to start to browbeat the, the you know Congress into cutting spending, just like Greenspan did and Bernanke did. The next couple of weeks will be crucial on this. The next couple of weeks. Jay yeah. Powell can make utterances and, you know, and I don't know, they're meeting on Tuesday. We'll see what comes of that. Anyway, thank you, Kevin Hassett. We appreciate thank it you. very, very much. Folks, go out and buy his book called The Drift. Stopping America Slides Socialism's Most Important Book of the 21st Century. I'm Cudlow. We're going to take a quick break. And the other side of the break, we're going to talk more about the jobs and the economy and declining real wages with Joe Lavornia, former uh, National Economic Council head economist. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Cudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Cudlow. We're going to have a little talk with my pal Joe Lavornia who was the former chief economist at the White House National Economic Council. Uh, he's now the head economist at SMBC Nico Securities. Joe, welcome back. I've got a couple things for you. First of all, I did get your chart, which is eye-popping. So let me get this right. Middle class and blue-collar real wages, that's wages adjusted for inflation, under Joe Biden uh, two years worth plus minus 2.1%. Under Donald Trump, I guess this is all four years of Trump, right? Correct. That's right. Plus 7.3. Now, you know, that that's an incredible contrast. Plus 7.3 for Trump, minus 2.1 for Biden. First of all, how did you calculate middle class and blue collar? What were the parameters there? Sure. What we did, Larry, is uh, I looked at the non-supervisory production workers, right. people who uh, are right. just basically living off their hourly wage rate. That doesn't include sales commissions and Wall Street bonuses and stock options and things that the higher and upper classes tend to get as a form of compensation. It's basically what you take home every week uh, from working hard. Mm-hmm. So, all right, so that's fair enough. Now, Biden, 2.1% minus 2.1%, is that, that's not getting any better. No, it's not getting better. Uh, I mean, the wage numbers yesterday showed a little bit of an increase, but uh, they're still not booming by any means. And, of course, as you know, inflation, while it's coming down, and I believe it will come down more, is still running above those wage rates. So, yes, real incomes, Larry, are still negative. That means that people are still paying more for the things they used to, even with those higher wages they might feel they've gotten. Well, so the point is, um, you know, if you're talking about elections and presidential elections and whatnot, this is a very important indicator. I mean, I think the decline in real wages in the last two years 
is one of the key reasons why everybody's these polls show so much pessimism, Joe, and also why Joe Biden's approval ratings on the economy are down around 35 percent, which is pretty, you know, which is awful. Larry, as you know, your old, old boss, Ronald Reagan, had run on uh, Are You Better Now Than Four Years Ago? And and that really now has become a nonpartisan issue. That's something the voters have to ask themselves from that old way, that old Reagan line. Are they better off now than four years ago? In some cases, people are. But certainly for the middle and working class, it certainly seems like they're under a lot of duress. And when we look at the economy and try to forecast it, the consumer confidence numbers reflect that. They reflect significant hardship really across the board, but especially for the middle class. And that's why I remain negative on the outlook, because I believe once those excess savings from the pandemic, that stimulus that we got back in early 21, once that fully runs out, the consumer is going to have to depend on rising real wages, not shrinking real wages. What did you learn from yesterday's jobs report? I mean, the downward revisions in February and March, I didn't know this. Kevin Hassett said there were downward revisions going all the way back to last September. But most pronounced, February and March revised down 150,000 jobs. So that 253 number in April is really kind of a phony number. Right. I, Kevin, what Kevin might be referring to is the recent annual benchmark, because mm-hmm. normally each month only goes back two months. But those revisions, about 150, they're quite large, Larry. And typically, uh, at inflection points, the revisions reflect the momentum in direction of the economy, which mm-hmm. is down. Mm-hmm. But the one thing I learned after the fact, uh, which is a bit wonky, but the BLS, as you know, makes these adjustments for jobs. And it looks like they used a really large plug factor. In other words, they created potentially, I don't want to say they did it wrong, but potentially phantom jobs uh, of mm-hmm. almost 380,000. So it's very possible as we move forward into the summer that we'll find this big April gain, like March uh, previously, is revised lower. So this is you're talking about this birth death. Correct. That's exactly right. The net birth death adjustment. April typically is a month that uh, that shows a lot of job growth. Uh, Now, it's possible, Larry, that, you know, the adjustments all got messed up during the pandemic. And then in in, in 21 and 22, we had positive readings in April. But that might just reflect the fact that maybe there was distortion in how they created some of these series because the pandemic messed everything up. But it seems like a number up around 400,000, which is where that adjustment was. It's about 55,000 higher than last year and Mm. about 70 the year before. That seems awfully aggressive. So Mm. I hate saying the numbers are wrong, but I do think there's a compelling case to be made that we've got to take this with a little bit of caution. In the household survey, while the unemployment rate fell, Larry, the household employment was only up about 134,000. Yep, 139,000. That's exactly right. And that's been slowing down quite a bit, too. So, Joe, what's your outlook for the economy in general? Larry, as you know, I've been I've been negative because all the growth we've seen has been on the consumer side. Investment spending has been weak. The manufacturing and housing sectors are in recession, and that's why the leading indicators have been so soft. I don't think I don't think we avoid it. Uh, the Fed with that yield curve and, you know, it's just unfortunately we've got bad policy all around. But the Fed is not looking at market price signals. The yield curve inversion is bothering me. And the fact that the three month bill is way above five percent and national wide savings rates, according to the FDIC, are around 60 basis points. This deposit flight is going to continue. So the Fed's going to have to have a very difficult choice. Are they going to deal with more and possibly growing systemic issues? 
uh, by keeping these rates high? Or are they going to lower rates, as I think they will, right or wrong, uh, to deal with this stress in the banking system? When do they lower rates? The market is saying September. That's broadly in line with history. I'm going to go with September as well. But, I, but my guess is when they go, Larry, they're going to go in 50s, not 25. So I'm a little bit more aggressive in terms of how much I think the cuts will be relative to the market. And by the way, it may be very inflationary when they're done cutting rates, but I do think they're going to go. Geez, I might, <clears throat> I might want to, I should be buying gold. Well, it's funny, you was just going to say that, Larry. Gold <laughs> has had a nice run. So the gold market might be sniffing this out. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, you know, I, boy, I don't, I think this, we're talking about this with Kevin Hassett just a few moments ago. I don't, for the life of me, understand why Jay Powell just doesn't echo these sentiments that I'm sure he would like to stop raising rates. He's got a banking crisis on his hands. He's got a softening economy on his hands. But he needs some spending cuts. I mean, he should come out and say that. And it's what Greg Ipp wrote in the Wall Street Journal, that lower spending – which Biden will not play yet. I mean, maybe he will. They got a meeting on Tuesday, blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, lower spending would help lower inflation, would help lower interest rates. And Jay Powell should say that. Give me one and I'll give you the other. Volcker did this. Alan Greenspan did this. Ben Bernanke did this. I don't know why Powell doesn't have the backbone to do it. Two things, Larry. Kevin has to make a great Fed chair. Yeah, he would make listening. it. He'd yes. make a great Fed he chair. Would. He would. But but here's what I would say to Jay Powell. He could actually even, if he wants, he tries to, he's trying to be as nonpartisan and not try to wade in on the fiscal issues, or so he said. But I think the problem, Larry, is that, as you know, the, the balance sheet ballooned to nearly $9 trillion. And the fact the Fed waited so long to remove that liquidity, which basically is killed off the bond vigilantes because the Fed's bought so much debt, uh, that's enabled, arguably, the government to spend as rapidly as they have. If they didn't QE, the market might push back. The market may ask for fiscal discipline. That's not happened. And unfortunately now, when they started the QT, they started it too late. And effectively with the banking situation, they've undone about two thirds of the Q of the QT they've done. To me, it's a total mess. I'm not sure exactly how you get out of it. If we had spending cuts, it, certainly that would help. Well, but, he doesn't, uh, I don't see that happening. The fact that the, the fact that a Fed chairman weighs in on fiscal policy doesn't mean they're being a partisan political player. I mean, there's fiscal policy and there's monetary policy and then there's regulatory yeah. policy. But the but, point is, but, I'm, I'm not asking him uh, to endorse Kevin McCarthy's plan, but I don't see why he can't make a more, you know, generic statement. I, I'll read you what Greg Ip wrote. I mean, I've been pushing this. A debt deal would help solve the country's inflation problem. Spending cuts could prompt the Fed to cut interest rates sooner, easing some of the pressure on banks. That's a statement that Jay Powell could and should make. Larry, he should do it, but I don't think he will. As he I needs think a backbone. A he needs a yeah. backbone. Well, I... You you know him and uh, and he did seem to go he 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 channeled he his Paul Volcker when he, he wanted reappointment so I, I, he needs back surgery yeah he needs <laughs> <laughs> honestly that's what he does I know the guy I know him very well he had lunch can you know for three years uh, those lousy fed turkey and cheese sandwiches but they meant well 
Anyway, the point is um, you're coming down to the short strokes. Next few weeks, right? The government's going to run out of money in early June. Uh, I think, you know, Yellen, I don't trust Yellen, but I think she's got that right, don't you? Isn't that going to be the moment of truth? Look, I mean, the the reality is they could stop, they could divest these trust funds in perpetuity. So it really comes out to when the Treasury thinks the deadline is. But, yes, based on the revenue trends, which are pretty lousy, yes, early June, I think this Treasury Secretary's roughly right. By the way, you're right about that. They could divest the trust funds. (laughs) You are so – they got a lot. Right. And and that's what – the question is just how big a hole do they want to deep? That's right. Why do they they, – instead of uh, spending – instead of making the investment – what is it? It's the – it's the civil service, it's the post workers, it's the thrift savings account. So they give them uh, non-marketable IOUs instead of putting the money in, making the investment. Yeah, you could make right. it do that in it's, it's the same thing, just what is classified as non-marketable <laughs> debt, which goes against the debt ceiling, and the other piece doesn't. <laughs> you know what? Soon, right, this is a new avenue, you know, non-marketable debt. Why haven't they figured that out yet? Great we, financial engineering. We could, we could go decades. <laughs> we could have two, two sets of books, you know. We could be like Italian business people. Hey, careful, <laughs> Larry, careful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Joe Lavornia, he's uh, now the chief economist at S- SMBC Nico Securities. He was my top economist at the White House National Economic Council. I'll talk to you soon, Joe. <laughs> to, actually, the Italians have three sets of books, one for the mistress. I'm Cudlow. <laughs> We're going to talk to famous Dr. Rock Positano in just a minute. Stay with us. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So we're going to bring in a great friend of mine, Dr. Rock Positano, who's a director of non-surgical foot and ankle services at the hospital for special surgery. He's a good friend. He's also my doctor, so more inside baseball. Actually, everybody on this show is a friend of mine one way or another. He's got a new book out. It's called Street Smart, The Primer for Success in the New World. So, Rock, I'm not sure I understand this. Working hard isn't enough. I work six days a week. Are you telling me to take to, to not work hard and everything's going to be okay? What are you telling me here? Larry, absolutely not. You know, I mean, if anyone knows street smart, it's you. Look at what you went through and look how how successful you were working under the most difficult circumstances. And, of course, a lot of that, Larry, had more to do with just being highly educated and and brilliant. We both know that. And, you know, the street smart concept, you know, it's important to realize that this is not a self-help book. There have been hundreds of those written Mm. based on other people's writings. This is a book written about real-life experience. And it's sort of the version of the 2.0 version of Carlito's Way, which was written by a great judge, Judge Ed, Tor- judge Ed Torres. And Ed actually wrote the foreword for this book. And oh. the best way to describe this is this is sort of like where the streets of Carlito's Way meets the tables down at Maury's. Because <laughs> the judge was a real, real tough street guy. You know, he used his street smarts. And one of the funny things, Larry, you may know, know this already, he once told a criminal that was, behind, that was before him on the, on the bench – when the criminal asked him, Your Honor, I want to know when I'm going to be up for parole. And 
Judge Torres says, quote, your parole officer hasn't been born yet. So it's really, <laughs> really, really interesting how the judge was able to combine his unbelievable knowledge of street smarts with legal applications to help decide many of his court decisions. Really kind of interesting. So, OK, but uh, you, we should work hard. That's of course the rest of this stuff. Old school ties. I don't care about that. Brilliant strategizing. There are no geniuses. No question about that. Diligence, I think, is important. Networking uh, is probably overrated, but it's okay. I don't know. I mean, so give me some more examples of street smarts. Well, well, you know, Larry, the important thing right now is we're living, as you know, better than anyone. We're living in a different world. You know, the new definition of success is now actually survival. If you're surviving, you're successful, especially these days, considering what COVID did to our country and probably what's going to be coming next. Who even knows that? And, of course, the problem with kids today is that they have it very rough. You know, they don't have the exposure like you and I had to develop this sixth sense, which is so important to be able to survive. And let's face it, Larry, we're all guilty of wanting to protect our kids. We don't want them to have it, quote, unquote, as difficult as we did. But my question, and are we actually hurting them in the long term and not allowing them to develop the hunting skills they need for survival? And one of the things about this, people say, well, how did you choose these people that you interviewed? Well, we chose people from many different backgrounds, you know. And when my brother John and I sat down, my brother John, as you know, co-wrote the book with me. We said, look, let's gather the opinions of people who for a million bucks would not want to sit down at the same dinner table and break bread. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the important thing. But it was interesting that, you know, there was a wide range of opinions, and they all seemed to have similar answers, meaning you stay with an idea you work it hard. You don't back down. But the most important thing they all said was trusting your instincts will give you a one-up and an advantage, which is really kind of what makes this, this book so different, is that it talks about instinct. How do you develop your instinct? And let's face it, that's something that you know, Larry, you're not born with. It's either there and you have to develop it, and that's it. Well, I was just thinking uh, about survival. Uh, so I worked three years for Donald Trump. Um and then I got a job. <laughs> a lot of people didn't. Uh, I mean, because of the whole uh, January 6th business and whatever. But I did for a while there. I think I was the only uh, senior Trump person that got a job. So I guess I should be. I am grateful. I mean, I'm, I love doing what I'm doing on uh, radio and, and the TV show. But, you know, Larry, the big thing with you is that you've always made yourself, quote, unquote, relevant. When you're relevant, you know, your, your value never goes down. And, you no, know, your, your expertise in the areas that you know, economy, business, politics, makes you unbelievably relevant. And it's one of those things where you're evergreen. No matter what you say, mm-hmm. you're always going to be evergreen because people are always going to want to get Larry Kudlow's advice or his take on things. So in many respects, you have to thank yourself for your ability to stay relevant. And that's one of the things that you've done unbelievably well. You well, know? I, I think I have to thank you for allowing me to walk <laughs> so I can get to work. I mean, that's very important. Having a good foot guy is, is incredibly important. Rock, tell us a, uh, a moment or two about the uh, importance of the hospital for special surgery, which is a great institution. Well, one of the wonderful things about our hospital is that we really do promote health from all areas of life, meaning, you know, it's not just about your musculoskeletal health, your ability to walk, your ability to stand, 
your ability to do things. I mean, HSS continues to be a leader in keeping people mobile. Mm. Because let's face it, Larry, your ability to walk and to move around may not necessarily be you know, life-threatening, but it certainly is lifestyle-threatening. And as we both know, if you're not able to walk, it creates problems. It makes you unhappy. It makes you depressed. It actually affects your overall health because if you're not able to walk comfortably, you develop problems like type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, etc. So one of the beautiful things about this hospital, even though it says it's the hospital for special surgery, is their commitment to looking at all areas of musculoskeletal health, which is also to do whatever can be done to prevent operations, because operations are only the last resort. Mm. And that's one of the beautiful things about this place, is that we have a large range of specialists from non-surgical to surgical that provide the best care and do their best to keep people walking. Because as, as we both know, even after COVID, you know, the single most important form and safest form of transportation was walking because people were afraid to take cabs. They were afraid to take the subway. Mm. And the ability to ambulate, the ability to walk comfortably continues to be one of the most important strategic forms of, of, of being life relevant, so to speak. Well, I, so you keep me walking. Actually, so Skolko gave me a new hip. That was years ago. Uh, hip replacement, which actually worked out very well. And then I got a second hip replacement uh, when I was in Washington working uh, in the government. But it, uh, the guy who did it was a former Skolko resident. So there you have it. Long reach well, of Tom Skolko. It's a long one. Well, Dr. Skolko, you know, continues to be, as always, a an unbelievably gifted uh, physician, surgeon. Is he still and, operating? And- Oh, of course he is. Come I on. Tom is the Tom's senior. Still operating. Of I course he's know. still operating. I didn't know that. He must be 120. No, no, Tom. <laughs> Tom still. <laughs> Tom. Tom still looks unbelievably well. You At know, my age, all everybody's 120. You know, he looks better than I do, for God's sakes. You know. Well, yeah. Well, I understand that. That's, <laughs> I, I get that. I know a lot of people like that. But the point is, uh, it was his resident in Washington D.C. who did my other hip, my my right hip. While I was working for Pope for uh, for President Trump, so all right, so is this book out? Yeah, yeah, it's out. It's actually doing very well. But again, you know, Larry, this is a book not just for the teenagers, but also for the parents of the teenagers to all better right. help guide the new world, the new generation of you these kids it. coming out. All right, my again, great pal, Doctor Rock Positano, you terrific stuff. All right, buddy, talk soon. Folks, we're going to take a little break. On the other side of the break, going to do some stock market work. Maybe we'll buy some gold. Who knows? It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. By the way, during the week, please join us on Fox Business Network TV. The name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday. And if you can't uh, join us at 4 o'clock, text your favorite 9-year-old. She'll show you how to DVR the show. And here you can uh, get us on the Internet. You can live stream us on the Internet all across LarryKudlowShow.com. Is that it? LarryKudlowShow.com. LarryKudlowShow.com. Here is all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system and the Milky Way. And we have two very distinguished guests to talk about stocks. I'm so confused. Listen, Kevin Hassett says inflation's going up. Uh, Joe Lavornia says inflation's going down. Oil coming down, no inflation, gold going up, inflation, the Fed raised rates.
Joe Biden doesn't think there's any relationship between spending and borrowing. Oh, my God. I don't even know if I want to go there. And um, it's all very confusing to me. So let's talk to, first of all, world-famous economist Michelle Girard, who happens to be the head of U.S. NatWest Markets, world-famous Michelle Girard, and Nancy Tengler, world-famous investor, CEO and chief investment officer of Laffer Tengler Investments. Well, kids, I'm, it's all very confusing. It's all very confusing. Michelle Girard, I begin with you. What is your outlook for interest rates and inflation? Well, I mean, I had it really, it's kind of mind-boggling in a way. Two really smart people, back-to-back. Uh, Kevin Hassett, right? He's he, Both of them are smarter than I am. And Joe Lavornia have competing, completely different worldviews. All right, so... What's a poor investor going to do here? Well, it is not easy times, and I don't envy the Fed, although they've gotten themselves into this situation, um, kind of stuck between having to, to pick your poison between dealing you know, with higher inflation um, or, or to deal with the situation on the, on the banking side. Um, in terms of the economic outlook, I, I have to say I'm, I'm more in Joe's camp, mm-hmm. um, and I have been very skeptical about inflation being able to come down as a rule through this most of this cycle. But you know, with the credit tightening that I do think we are going to see, you know, obviously I think we'll see more regulation on the banking side. None of this good for the economy. We had already thought the economy was likely to slip into, you know, head into recession uh, later this year in 2024, basically because the only way you can get inflation down is to really, you know, to raise rates enough to, to lead to a recession. So with the extra headwinds now of um, tighter credit, we're more confident in the recession call, and, and therefore, you know, I, I have more confidence that you'll see inflation come down. We actually have inflation, at, you know, moving down to below 3% on the Fed's kind of core core rate, if you will, um, by, the, by the end of the year. Mm. You know, I <clears throat> just on that point, uh, I think for the first time, I'm now thinking I want the Fed to stop raising rates. Yeah. I want mm-hmm. at least a pause. Now, I agree. Now, Lavornia thinks they're going to start cutting rates big time. Uh, he's reading the yield curve, I think, in some of the futures markets. But I, th- I think for all the reasons you said, and, you know, Michelle, we used to look at commodity indexes. I know that's passe. Nobody looks at them. But the commodity indexes, the broad indexes are showing uh, declines. Right. Um, including oil, but not I mean, these are like broad based CRB, Goldman Sachs, all that stuff. And right. I'm very interested in the oil story. Oil closed at seventy one dollars. I think seventy one dollars and thirty four thirty four cents called seventy one dollars. West Texas crude. This is after the Saudis, Saudi plus OPEC plus whatever it's called, uh, cut production by allegedly a million barrels or more. But it's, oil's gone down, net net. Right. So that's unusual. I mean, that's a recession sign. Right. Yeah, I think the yield curve, the <clears throat> commodity numbers, as you've said, you know, all support what Joe and I are thinking, which is that the economy is going to is going to struggle. You're, you're, you know, it's you look at Friday's employment number, and. It you know pushes back obviously against that that argument, and in fact on the inflation front we've got 
a higher kind of core rate expectation for next week or this week's CPI number than the consensus. Mm. But, but, you know, again, I, I'm looking forward uh, to where, I, you know, some of these leading indicators that we look at, you know, we're, to me, I, I think we, you know, this, I don't want to, I don't want to be making uh, expect, you know, betting on, on the numbers we're seeing today, looking ahead, I think we are seeing warning signs, and I agree with you. I, I do think having you know raised rates over 500 basis points, the Fed is is in a position against this backdrop to pause. And and if our forecast is right, and you've, you're in a recession with negative GDP growth by the end of the year, and inflation having moved down from what the peak of nine to being you know at three percent or lower, then I actually think Joe's right. They will have room to cut. We we ourselves have cuts. Mm. We brought them forward. Um, into the you know the end of of this year rather than in 2024. So actually, Joe and our forecasts are very much aligned. Well, other things like M2 is falling and the yep. curve is inverted. Nancy Tangler, so weigh in on this. And I want to add the other thing that's so somewhat if if you think rates are going to come down, I don't know if you do, but if one thinks rates are going to come down, um, that would help explain the strength in gold. In fact, even maybe more strength coming. I had Jim Urio on the TV show last night. He's buying gold left and right. Yeah, I, I saw that, by the way, Larry. And um, it's great to be on with you and Michelle. Um, I, I'm going to make your life very easy today on the <laughs> back end of the show. Uh, <laughs> I agree with Joe and Michelle and have consistently said that I thought we had begun a new bull market in October, mm. which does not mean that stocks are going to go up you know, linearly um, and and high always. We also talked about a very choppy May, and that may carry into June with the debt ceiling crisis. But I I think the Fed should be done if they're not. I thought they should be done at the last meeting. Mm. Um, There there continues to be a real lack of leadership coming uh, from the chairman. And I love your comment that maybe he should get back surgery. But, he you know, he has been spinal spinal surgery. (laughs) That's what he he needs. He needs spinal (laughs) surgery to tell Biden to negotiate. Okay, (laughs) why is this so hard? I'm sorry. Exactly. And it's not political. It's just good monetary fiscal policy. So this notion that that he's unwilling to be political makes him more political. But I thought one of the most moving moments in the in the presser was when he was asked about by Steve Leisman. He was asked about, um, you know, the the um, preparation that they've had or the update they've had on the banking situation. And, you know, his response was was frightening. I mean, he basically said, well, I, I didn't remember it. So I went back and looked and then I did remember it. And, you know, it was just a broad. What? Um, what? Yeah. I mean, here's, here's the quote. So he said the February 14th presentation, I didn't remember it very well. But now, of course, I've gone back and looked at it very carefully. I did remember it. And what it was was a general presentation and then went on to say that the banking system was sound. And shortly thereafter, we had the Pact West News and then the. Um, <laughs> and he's 15 uh, years younger than Biden. Well, that's really scary. <laughs> so I, I think the market is in charge now, and 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 the market is forecasting interest rate cuts. To answer your original question, and and so I think therefore um, that we will see that sooner than the the Fed and the dot plots indicate, hmm. which has been all the way through this this whole inflation regime, the rate cutting hikes regime. Uh, we've seen the market lead and the Fed follow. You know. Uh... With all that, Michelle Gerard, you are an alumnae 
of the Federal Reserve. I think that, they, you know, the forward guidance has done more harm than good. Right. Just, I don't know, just that thought just occurred. They ought to keep their yaps. When I worked for the New York Fed, all right, you know, remember, I, w- I was in open market operations and I was also in bank supervision. And uh, in those days, they didn't have any of that stuff. And in fact, later on, when Paul Volcker was the head of the New York Fed when I was there, but when he became chairman, he he didn't have any forward guidance. His forward guidance was a cheap cigar. That was all he ever did. And he, and he literally would blow smoke at the uh, senators, which I think they should go back to that. Yeah. It, you know, and there's been a lot of discussion around whether or not we should just eliminate that dot plot. And it was introduced to, to try to give the Fed another tool, but it was actually a tool to be able to signal sort of favorably to the markets that rates were going to stay low for long or, or to appease the market, you know, that were worried about, uh, you know, rates moving up quicker. I mean, it was all in a way that was allowed the Fed to, to provide support for the markets without having to necessarily do anything. But of course, it has just been extremely problematic when you've got events like the pandemic, you've got the banking situation. I mean, the Fed themselves don't know anything more than we do. Mm -hmm. And to try to suggest that, you know, that their guidance, especially when we get when we have, you know, unprecedented events or volatile events, that, you know, that that's going to hold it's just wrong. I mean, and so, yeah, I, I think that it's gotten it's certainly in the last several years created more you know problems for them, I think, than it has that it has helped. And um, I think that, you know, I was kind of hoping when they did the monetary policy review that maybe they would kind of bend that. But, you know, we haven't seen that yet. But I think it's put the Fed in um, a very, you know, very difficult and, and raises questions only about credibility, which they have anyway. So well, think about it. Nancy. I mean, one reason forward guidance is unhelpful is it's always wrong. I mean, they always get it wrong. It's remarkable, especially the last few years. But go back longer. I mean, look what they've done in the last couple of years. I mean, to Michelle's point, they, they just raised they raised their target rate 500 basis points in a year. OK, and if that weren't bad enough a year ago or a little more than a year ago, or I'm exaggerating, but what 14 15 months ago they were still at zero and like right. the issue was maybe they'd go up a quarter <laughs> really 500 <laughs> points i mean I, no wonder all these banks went down they they listened to the well, fed <laughs> and they were expanding the balance sheet until march as well there you um, go. So i'm, I'm actually a, working on mr magoo's washington redux and uh, I'm, yes. I'm going back and chronicling the history of of what happened and it, it's there is no credibility at the Fed, and that's why you really have to pay attention to the bond market, which as an equity investor, I can say is the smartest market. Mm. Um, and then stocks have also been discounting. You know, They discounted this last year, um, the, the potential recession. And I think you, you are, are right that you want to be in commodities. We've been adding to the commodities in our clean energy strategy, but also that you want to own the high-quality tech names mm. and consumer discretionary names because they have demonstrated – the ability to navigate this yeah. and um, generate reliable earnings growth. And we were advocating that in October. Um, I, it's, it's worked well for us, and I think it will continue to work, and you'll get some, another opportunity to buy a lot of those stocks All right, in, let's in take, May, May, June period. Let's take a quick break. We're talking to Michelle Girard of NatWest Markets. We're talking to Nancy Tengler.
Tangler of Laffer Tangler. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Uh, Nancy, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I had to get into a break. But you're buying, uh, sounds like economic sensitive stocks or even inflation sensitive stocks. Yeah, well, you didn't interrupt me, Larry. It is your show, um, so <laughs> <laughs> you can do whatever you want. It's all right. Um, <laughs> we ah. are um, and have been, and we had recently taken some gains in a number of the tech names uh, and some consumer discretionary. But I think that is where you want to be positioned in an economic slowdown. We we do agree with with Michelle um, that we probably will see a recession. Uh, we don't think it's going to be particularly startling or dramatic, and and. Typically, what you've seen historically that is that stocks bottom, you know, before fundamentals 80% of the time. So while we expect volatility to continue, we do think the market's pretty fairly priced X Fang at 15 times. Hmm. And and so we're we're looking for the kind the companies that. And and by the way, in the earnings season, 60% of companies actually raise guidance, which is way out of line with historical norms, albeit off of lowered estimates. But that was positive to us, and margins have held up relatively well. So we're in buying, um, you know, the kinds of names that can deliver reliable growth in a slowing economic environment. Michelle, um, take a stab. Look, is this uh, regional bank virus over or not? Yeah, I mean, I hate to say that we have been very skeptical in the moments of calm to really believe that that thing, mm. you know, that it's over. Um, and you know, and then you have the situation again with PacWest and others that kind of remind you or seem to to, to support that idea. Um, so, so yeah, um, I'm not sure we're we're kind of out of the woods um, yet from the fallout of. Of, of really with the Fed's very aggressive uh, rate hikes. And, and I guess even beyond, one of the things that we've been talking about is the fact that, you know, everybody is focused on some of the natural places where you would expect to see the, the kind of um, fallout, if you will, from Fed actions, small regional banks, commercial real estate. But I guess what, what we're conscious of is that, you know, the aftershocks from all of this can take a lot longer than people think to play out and show up in areas where you're, where people aren't focused. And that's, that's, I hate to sound like that we're waiting for the other shoe to drop, but, but, you know, we're even kind of watchful that you may see some, you know, kind of some secondary effects off, you know, um, off of even just what we, the volatility as a result, I should say, of the volatility um, that we're seeing in some of these places uh, in areas where people are not even looking at yet. So I, we just don't think that this is, you know, this is over. And that's why, I, you know, again, we're sort of very cautious about about the outlook and, you know, again, more confident that the Fed is in deck, should be done and is done. Well, look at uh when you have a deeply inverted yield curve, I mean, isn't that make it yeah. very difficult? Uh, yeah. You know, I I had lunch uh, with um, a couple of very, very senior people. I'm not going to go into names, but very, very, very senior people at a very, very, very large bank. And basically they said on this conversation, uh, yeah, they lost money, too in uh, their bond desk trading. But because of their other businesses, they're able to survive okay. 
smaller banks, whether they're regional banks or, I suppose, community banks, they don't have those other businesses. I mean, their business is basically, you know, buying bonds and, and making loans. Uh, these big, big, big banks have tons of businesses, including insurance companies and things of that sort. So I just am saying that a deeply inverted – I mean, I'm, the three-month T-bill is about five and a quarter. The 10-year is about 340 uh, and the Fed funds rate is five and a quarter. I mean, that's tough, tough to survive that, isn't it? it it's it's really, uh, you know, it's really tough. I mean, we were just yesterday at the, I mean, first of all, obviously very high interest rates and a, a steeply inverted curve. I mean, the intention of that is to slow the economy down because it, it, it discourages all the activity that you would normally see and need to see to keep an economy robust. So I was, we were at the auto dealership yesterday, and he was you know, talking about the fact that the, the, with rates where they are and financing rates, you just can't, you know, people can't right. lease cars. I yeah. mean, you know, it, but this is, the, this is what has to happen, yeah. you know, to get the economy inflation down. So. Anyway, thank you, kids. Michelle Gerard, appreciate it. Nancy Tangler, as always. Folks, we're going to uh, take a quick pause and then Money in Politics with Liz Peek and Steve Moore. Download all of Red Apple Media's podcasts right now through your favorite podcast platform. The only president we have, name is Joe Biden. All right. And he's talking yesterday and he says the following. MAGA Republicans in Congress are threatening to undo all this progress by letting us default on the debt unless we agree to their demands. Now, here's the key. The two are totally unrelated. Whatever you pay, whether you pay the debt or not, doesn't have a darn thing to do with what your budget is. Where are you going to spend money? How are you going to raise the money? What are you going to cut? Where are you going to? They're two separate issues. So let me get this right. Uh, I'm going to go to you first, Liz Peek. Spending has nothing to do with borrowing or debt. Nothing. Or debt has nothing to do with spending. That's what he's saying here. So I think yeah. we could be in for a cold, a long summer. I don't know. But you tell me. How do you get to where he's getting? Well, I think I think what he's saying is uh, we can talk about the spending and the budget in September Raising the debt ceiling is all about spending we've already approved. And I mean, that's the distinction he's trying to draw. But the problem is, I think actually not much has been said about this. And I think literally it is the case. You can't count on Joe Biden or the Democrats to come through with any kind of promises. In other words, on May 9, when they all sit down, he might say, well, look, we're going to we're going to cut spending just the way you want. But first, you have to give me a clean debt ceiling increase. There's no way Kevin McCarthy can take that back to the Republican caucus. Mm. Look at what happened with Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin made a deal with the Democrats and with Joe Biden to approve uh, the Inflation Reduction Act in return for permitting and other things he wanted in that act. And they totally took the, pulled the rug out from under him. So there is no negotiating with this crew. And you know, if if the if the uh, president had wanted to avoid this standstill, he should have allowed the Republicans to have some say in the omnibus bill that ah, last, last year. So right? therefore, spe- borrowing does have something to do with spending. Yeah. OK, that's all I'm trying to establish here. If we hadn't done the spending in the first place, 
And he's done <laughs> yes. whatever, five or six trillion dollars in a couple of years, which is a nice piece of change. We wouldn't be in the fix we're in or we'd be in the fix later. I don't know which. But I mean, Steve Moore, if he doesn't understand that A leads to B, we got an even bigger problem here <laughs> than I think we have. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about this in the context of I remember back in um let's see, 2011, when John Boehner was negotiating with Obama, and I did an interview with him. I was at the Wall Street Journal at the time, and uh, you know, Boehner told me the story that became you know a, a really big headline around the country, which is Boehner asked uh, Obama about the spending problem, and and Obama said very famously, "We don't have a spending problem in Washington," and and that mm-hmm. became a big headline. And I, I just mentioned that incident because that's I'm what sure this that- is. Exactly. I yeah. sure that Joe Biden would say the same. What spending yeah. problem? There's right. not a spending problem in right. Washington. Uh, so here's the. But let's not bury the lead here. The most important thing is that, <laughs> as I said, that John, uh, that John, uh, that um, uh, Kevin McCarthy is Time Magazine's Man of the Year. He is the guy who has really uh, put uh, Joe Biden in a uh, box that is collapsing mm-hmm. on him. And there's no reason for Republicans to be saying much of anything right now. First of all. Joe Biden can't even get his own Senate, his own Senate to pass. <laughs> Why yeah. is he talking about John Boehner? I mean, uh, Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans when Chucky Schumer can't get 51 votes for let alone 60 for any kind of thing. So I think that uh, McCarthy should just sit back and smile politely and say, when you got a deal, we're ready to negotiate. We passed the debt ceiling. We passed it. It's, yeah. it's the Democrats who haven't passed one. And, and just sit back, because I have never seen – I said this on your TV show the other day. I haven't seen the Republicans this unified in 30 years. By the way, here's one, Liz. Uh, this is – you write for The Hill, don't you? <laughs> yes, yes, I do. All right, so there's a headline from The Hill. McConnell warns he won't back debt ceiling increase without substantive reforms. Yeah. Woo, How about finally. that? I mean, Finally, you, right? You know, he because fell. I, Mitch fell. He had a bad fall, which is, a, you know, <laughs> I don't wish to. And he um, he had uh, concussion therapy. All right. And he's come back better after this uh, concussion therapy. So this is terrific. <laughs> McConnell you, said, mean, you mean he, in this therapy, you think that actually worked out some kinks and now he gets it? I'm, so I'm we te- need to have spending cuts. I'm telling you, the guy's a new man. <laughs> And he's come back. No more omnibus bill. No, yeah. no debt ceiling increase without substantive reforms. I'm proud of him. Concussion you know, Larry, therapy. I, I think what's happened, and I, I think this is interesting because I think what's happened is that polling is showing Democrats and Republicans that the American people actually care hmm. about our spending. And the reason is inflation. End of story. Mm-hmm. I mean, for two or three years, that connection has been made by voters. Too much spending leads to inflation. What do we have now? We have a Fed that has ratcheted up interest rates so violently that banks are failing, all because of inflation. People get it. Inflation is a bad thing. So, frankly, I think it's high time that McConnell got on board this ship. It's taken him far too long. If we had had a little more uh, gusto out of McConnell, maybe we wouldn't have had that horrible omnibus bill. But thank heavens now. To your point, Steve, I think Republicans really are united. And isn't it ironic? Because all we heard during that whole fight over the speakership was how it was a fractious caucus. It was never going to get together on anything. Well, thank heavens that's not true. By the way, Steve, you know, uh, I've been saying this on this show 
Greg Ipp, right, is not exactly a card-carrying supply sider, but Greg Ipp wrote a good piece, I think it was yesterday or the day before, where he said, look, at a debt deal could help solve the country's inflation problem. Spending cuts could prompt the Fed to cut interest rates sooner, easing some of the pressure on banks. I mean, that's a very good insight. And so, Larry, can, can I say something about that? Because it's really – you're making a very important point. And one of the smartest guys on Wall Street, uh, Jeff Yass, who runs Susquehanna Capital and has become a billionaire because he's one of the smartest guys. He's a, a, a hedge fund manager. He has put out a statement saying if, McCon- if, uh, if the president were to agree to the deal mm-hmm. that Kevin McCarthy's put on the table, it's worth $5 trillion on the stock market. Five wow. Trillion. wow. And, he wow. Said, and he said agreeing to raise the debt ceiling without spending reforms probably cuts about $2 trillion. So it's exactly the opposite, of course, is what the Biden administration is saying. In- unless you give me everything yeah. I want. We're going to have a, a crash in the market. No, that if, if Biden were to say, and it would be in his own economic interest and political interest to agree to what McCarthy said, because he'd be a winner here. You would see a cessation of inflation. You see a big boost in the stock market. I wonder if you agree with that analysis. You're pretty good at this, too, Larry. Well, I, I agree with the thrust of it. I mean, I mm-hmm. and I believe that Jay Powell should be saying things like this. Also. Exactly. Right. Yep. Jay, he's not. Right. And I. I fault Jamal no, Jay, on that because yeah, you no. and I have lived through a lot of Fed chairmen, and they've been really good on saying, "Get down, you know, cut that spending, cut the debt." And Powell won't say that. Well, what you got here is uh, McConnell went through successful uh, concussion therapy, but Jay <laughs> Jay, Jay Powell uh, Jay, hasn't had that opportunity. Jay Powell, on the other hand, no, no, Jay Powell needs spinal surgery. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's what he needs. I mean, he should come out and he doesn't have to endorse uh, McCarthy. He doesn't have to talk about that, but he should say something about what Greg Yip just wrote, for example. Uh, it yep. would free up the Fed. It would well, make, wasn't it, it, would uh, make, wasn't it uh, Druck, was it Druck, who was the other big Wall Street guy? Druckenmiller, Druck Stanley Druckenmiller. He, he said it right. He said, you know, you're worried about this 30 foot wave that's coming. Yep. And behind that is a 200 foot wave, which is called the, the debt itself. And no, it's the spending, the spending. Yeah, and spending. Stanley yep. years ago, uh, Stan Druckenmiller, who's a good friend and a very, very smart, successful guy. Yep. You know, Stan years ago during that Boehner thing, I think it was during that one. Anyway, yeah. he said, look, if you pay the interest on the Treasury bond 10 days later in return for significant spending cuts, right. it's worth it. And yeah. see, that's that's what people are missing here. Or you guys aren't missing it, but I'm saying a lot of people are missing yeah, it. Right. But if, for Joe Biden to say there's no connection between spending and borrowing is insane. And it is like Obama saying we don't have a spending problem. But um, before we take a quick break, the I, I mean, do you think anything's going to happen, Steve, at this uh, meeting on, with the Four Corners on Tuesday? The Four Corners? Um, no, I think Biden yeah. is really, uh, but but he will. I'm going to make a prediction. He is going to have to. He's going to have to make some real concessions here. Yeah. Because as I said, I mean, you know, Liz and I are at the same conference right now with a lot of these Freedom Caucus members. We're in Florida, and they, I don't know, Liz, they seem pretty committed to, you know, to taking a hard stance here. Yeah, they do. And and they're poo-pooing the idea that the world will come to a shattering right. halt if if they don't arrive at a, a deal by June 1. I mm. think, look, the, the left-leaning media like Bloomberg, CNBC, et cetera, boy, they are 
calling for catastrophe and oh, uh, yeah. the end of the global system as yeah, we know as it. We know it. Um, but uh, Larry, you have said many times, and I think it's worth remembering, there's a lot of the ways the Treasury can uh, meet their obligations uh, without, uh, you know, tremendous heartburn uh, if in, if indeed we get to that point. I Look mean, at I was talking. I was talking yeah, to LaVornia about this. I mean, the way this works is, I mean, they can keep borrowing from the retirement funds forever, okay? It's civil service. It's the uh, postal workers. It's the thrift savings plan. What they're doing here, the game is, uh, they are not investing into those funds. Instead, they give them a non-marketable bond, essentially an IOU, that, yeah. that they will make the investment later on. And in fact, you can have a whole new market of non-marketable IOUs. I mean, we could do this forever, trillions and trillions of dollars. In effect, the U.S. government never runs out of money. So that argument is silly. But I do think um, Janet Yellen inadvertently did everybody a favor by putting up June 1, uh, whether that's true or not. And and theoretically, it's not true. As a practical matter, cash flow, it could be true. But that might force somebody to do something, right? Right now, except for Kevin McCarthy, nobody else is doing anything. So if we, with next few weeks, you know, maybe, maybe they'll figure out they have to do something. I don't know. But, but again, I think also the polling shows people really don't think Joe Biden is up to the job. And everything in the last 48 hours, 72 hours, whatever, has really kind of amplified that again. I mean, this whole thing about saying we're going to have a big press conference. Don't worry, I'll get to your questions. And then, <laughs> oops, there wasn't any press conference. Um, you know, I think I think his his ability to actually negotiate, people are really questioning that. So I think this I think there's more riding on this for the president than they think, than he thinks, and that the Democrats think. They think they have the the high level here. I'm not sure that's true. Well, you might be going to jail in the next three weeks. This pay for play <laughs> thing with Ukrainian money. I mean, yeah. this gets spookier and spookier. The yeah. FBI's well. got document. I mean, I don't know. Um, well, anyway, let's take a break. I, none, it's all allegations. I will acknowledge it's all allegations. Um, when we come back, I want to talk about Ron DeSantis. His legislative session is over. He's going to formally announce for president in a week or two. We're talking to Liz Peek, and we're talking to Steve Moore. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking to Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and we're talking to Steve Moore, whose great radio show, More Money, follows this show. So, kids, um, uh, the legislature is done, and Ron DeSantis is going to announce for president formally, I don't know, sometime soon. Um, could be the next few days, next few weeks. Uh, I would argue he's been running. He's gone overseas and whatever. But um, he is, depending on the poll, 30 or 40 points down to Trump. The question is, how does DeSantis get back into it? And does his formal announcement close the polling uh, at all? Uh, start with you, Steve Moore. What do you think? Well, three months ago, all the big money, all the Coke network money, all the Club for Growth money and so on, was investing very, very heavily on Ron DeSantis. I mean, uh, a couple hundred million dollars came into his uh, coffers, um, but he's had a a bad couple of months. Uh, And I say this as a fan of Ron DeSantis. I think he's been an absolutely fantastic governor. 
you know, what he is that the growth uh, of uh, Florida at the expense of California and New York and Connecticut and states like that has been incredible. It's the number one destination place in America. He now has the most sweeping school choice um, regime of any state in the United States. That's a really important issue right now, given how depraved our schools are. And so he's got a lot of accomplishments. Um, the question is whether he can kind of make the sale. I'll just say one other thing. He's a little Trumpish, you know, in his kind of mash mouth approach. And I, and I don't know if you can out Trump Trump. You know what I mean? <laughs> no. What do, what do you mean, actually? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, that, you know, he's abrasive like Trump can be. And he can, you know, he kind of stacks people in the nose. He can come on strong. And, you know, if people don't want Trump, I don't know if they want a kind of mini me version of Trump. But I would defer to uh, you guys on that one. So, Liz, what should what should DeSantis do to get back into the race? Well, look, he he let Trump sort of identify him and um, kind of take pot shots at him for about a month and a half. I think that was a mistake. I think he should have started fighting back. Now he is. You know, but we all are are sort of convinced that Trump has really made great progress. The truth is, if you look at the two people's approval ratings side by side, Trump is underwater nationally by about 20 points. Mm. And this is a combination of polls. DeSantis has a positive net Mm. approval rating. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the question is, how does he win the primaries? Because I think I, I don't think there's a question that he beats Joe Biden. Uh, in the in the general election, you I mean, mean Bob Kennedy. I, well, yeah, exactly. That's maybe, a joke. Maybe. Just kidding. Yeah, that no, was a joke. you never know. Joke, you never joke, know. joke. Uh, but by the way, it's a tremendous indictment of Joe Biden that Kennedy has got what nineteen percent or twenty percent of the vote. I mean, it's incredible to me. Um, but but anyway, I think DeSantis is an excellent character uh, candidate. He's got an incredible CV. He's got everything except he's got to figure out the primary voters. And I think if Republican voters come around to thinking he can win, surely at some point that makes a difference. And if they're convinced that Trump can't. One thing he should do, my humble opinion, is start talking about the economy and falling real wages and inflation and stop uh, fighting Walt Disney. I agree. I mean, I think the Disney thing has hurt him among his own supporters he won. He got the legislation uh, to stop the, you know, up to five years old to stop talking about sex and gender in school. He won that. Now he's involved in a governance race. He needs to get back to kitchen table issues. That's what he needs yeah. to do. Yeah. And by the way, Florida gives them plenty of opportunity to do that. Sure. This is a successful state. I mean, it works and it continues to work and low taxes and low regulation. Oh, my gosh, does he have a story to tell? Larry, you're totally right. He needs to tell that story. Steve, you have to go and tutor him. <laughs> you got to get down there and tutor him, you and yeah, Arthur. Well, go and tutor him. We're gonna, yeah, we're gonna, we, we all will because we're going to have him in New York uh, in a couple of months and, and uh, we will, for the committee, one of our committee dinners. And, mm. Larry, I want you to tutor him, too. I mean, look, great, great record amazing success story i love the idea you know what wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a gavin newsom versus uh you know ron DeSantis, a florida versus california because california is a mess i was just reading uh two mile long uh, homeless encampments now in california Mm. you don't see that in florida Mm. no that's right he just has to tell the story that wall street journal editorial 
New York versus Florida. Yeah. I mean, that's one place to start. And then just, you know, start attacking. I mean, instead of attacking Disney, he should be attacking Joe Biden's mismanagement yeah. of the economy. And yeah. it's not exactly. hard. He's got plenty of material to work with. Taxes, well, regulations, I- inflation, spending, borrowing, you know, that's what he needs to do. He can get back into the race very fast if he does that. I agree. And I think also, by the way, I think Trump looks small going after DeSantis. I think if DeSantis trained his guns on Biden, that would be a very welcome shift. Mm -hmm. And that's where the conversation should be. I um, yeah, well, that's what I think. Uh, By the way, you know, who's showing up well on the issues is uh, our friend Vivek, Vivek Ramaswamy. Oh, my gosh. He He was here. Uh, two nights ago, yeah. uh, Larry, and he mes- mesmerized the crowd. I Unfortunately, I was not here, but apparently, I mean, you know, he's really doing well and yeah. winning people over. So mm-hmm. uh, it's a long shot to be sure, yeah. but I must say he does have a good, a good pitch and people are really taken in by it. I think, Steve, well, um, with Vivek, who's a very bright young man, he will make a very good contribution uh, in the debates to the issues mm-hmm. discussion, he will force an, an issues discussion, which I think is a great contribution for him to make. Yeah, we also saw last night uh, at this conference um, Chris Sununu, and Sununu is fantastic too. Mm-hmm. He blew, he blew away the crowd. I mean, there are a lot, here's the thing: there are a lot of really, really, really good Republican governors around the country. I mean, I love Kim Reynolds. I love uh, the governor of, of Virginia, Gladys Youngkin. I, you know, I love uh, Governor Stitt of Oklahoma. In other words, that's where the real talent pool of the Republican Party is, is with respect to uh, really talented and, and governors who've really delivered on tax cuts, on school choice, on, you know, balancing the budget, all these things that never happen in Washington. Which uh, which conference are you at now? We Freedom are at the Freedom Works conference. Yeah, oh, it, it's Freedom Works. We miss right. you, Larry. We can't understand why you're not here with us. Well, I... I love Freedom Works. I had to politely decline due to my responsibility. You know, working working for a living is very difficult, kids. It really is. It's actually, but it is terrific. We've had a lot of good speakers. I just interviewed Representative Massey from Kentucky. He yep. is an awesome guy. Yep. Um, and a lot of a lot of energy in this Republican Congress. I remember when Kevin McCarthy went through his trial by fire, um, mm. you know, everyone was so convinced that they would never get together. I think there's a lot that this Republican Congress mm-hmm. has done, including first four months. Mm. Every bill has had 72 hours for everyone to review it. Mm. You know, that hasn't happened in decades. <laughs> no, I agree. It's a good group. Uh, I think the conservative, so-called conservative push made him better, made the conference better. And I think they're going to hang tough on the debt ceiling. Anyway, you're both terrific. Liz Peak and Steve Moore. Steve Moore's radio show will follow this show. It's called Moore's Money. Thanks, kids. We will be back next weekend, everybody.
This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 